So, uh, welcome back, everyone. Hope you had a good spring break. I know uh, some of you were in Jamaica, right? Yeah, good. Did you have a good Jamaica? Yeah, I look forward to hearing about that. Uh, I haven't really heard much yet, so I'm looking forward to hearing about uh, the spring break trip. And um, this is kind of a special and sort of sad night for me. Uh, this is actually my last time giving a talk as one of the Veritas directors. So I started this, I guess, nine, nine years ago, uh, doing this. I don't know how many talks I've given, but that's sort of a sad thing for me. Uh, and uh, because of that, my daughter is in the back and wanted to come and hear Daddy's last talk at Veritas. So that was kind of cool. So my daughter's here with me, Anna. Uh, sweet for coming. <laughs> yeah, she's waving in the back. So, by the way, so if you, if you know me very well, one thing that you know about me is that I am often just a few minutes late. I mean like one minute or two minutes or three minutes. I'm usually not like 15 minutes late. I'm usually like two or three minutes late. And the reason I'm two or three minutes late is because I never learn. I, I, I do the same things over and over again and expect a different result. See, I never learn the lesson. I always think that if I'm working on something, I can always do that one more thing, right? Just that one more little thing or two more little things before I go. I've got time. Always makes me late. Never learn. So I think someone said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting that different result, right? So when it comes to being late, I guess I'm insane. Uh, Can any of you relate to my insanity? Please say you can. Okay, good. So if you think about it, we're all a little bit insane spiritually. We keep doing the same things and expecting a different result. We think that something other than God will satisfy us. So we chase after that thing, right? It could be a relationship, success, partying, approval, pleasure, whatever. But we chase after it, and yeah, it'll satisfy for a while, but it never lasts. It always leaves us empty. And more than that, it always gets us into some sort of trouble, some sort of consequence or regret, right? And then what do we do? Well, naturally, we pray to God and ask God that he would get us out of the trouble, right? God, I know I should have studied, but please, will you please just help me pass this test this one time? I promise I'll study next time. God, I know I shouldn't have cheated on that homework. Just please don't let me get caught. I promise I won't do it again. God, I know I shouldn't have hooked up with that guy or girl, please don't let me get caught. Please don't let this hurt my reputation. God, I know I shouldn't have gotten drunk again, done those stupid things. Just please don't let me get caught this time. See, for the moment, we're desperate for relief, right? But then when things calm down, what do we do? We tend to go right back and do the same things and expect a different result. So we're continuing tonight in our series on the Old Testament. We're going through the Old Testament. We're hitting uh, the Old Testament in nine people. And so uh, we see tonight that Israel has that same sort of spiritual insanity going on. They do those same things over and over again. The the cycle looks something like this. See, in in the book of Judges that we're going to look at tonight, the people seek satisfaction in false gods instead of the true God. Each time this leads to them being oppressed, basically beaten and oppressed by another nation around them, put into great distress. Finally, they cry out to God, pray that God will rescue them. 
But then as soon as they aren't in that trouble anymore, they turn right back to their false gods. Sound familiar? Here's the question for tonight. How do we get out of the cycle of idolatry? How do we get out of that cycle of spiritual insanity? Is there a way out? The Bible says there is a way out. How do we get out? That's the question for tonight. So let me give you a quick historical context just so you know what's going on. All right. So last time we were together, right before spring break, Austin talked about Rahab and how Rahab helped the Israelites take Jericho. So they conquered Jericho and conquered the land that God was giving them, the promised land. But the problem was that they did not drive out all the nations as God told them to. They sort of left pockets of the nations around them where they were supposed to drive them out. And so the map looks something like this. So you've got Israel there in the mid the green, but all around them, these people that were supposed to be driven out. And these people's religious practices, especially their worshiping of other idols, false gods, pulled the Israelites in again and again into idolatry. So the book of Judges, what it is, it's the historical account of the Israelites living in this new land, but falling into this cycle of spiritual insanity over and over again. And so during the time of the Judges, there are 12 Judges. Um, We're actually going to focus on the eighth one. Uh, You've probably never heard of him. His name is Jephthah. Okay, and I'm not choosing him necessarily because his story is the most interesting, because frankly it's not. Uh, there's a lot more interesting stories than Judges, but I chose it because, for two reasons. One, because I think it really shows the cycle of idolatry and how that plays out in our life very clearly. And then secondly, because I think it shows the way out very clearly, okay? So that's where we're going to look at Jephthah's life. All right, so let's, let's take a moment and pray. Father, would you please open our hearts and our eyes to see your truth? Would you please help us to see the idols in our lives and see what idolatry is doing in our lives? Would you please help us to see the way out and take the way out? In Jesus' name, amen. So the Bible says there is a way out. What is it? This passage teaches us that if we want to get the way out, it comes by realizing three things, okay? The first thing we have to realize is that idolatry always leads to slavery and misery. Idolatry always leads to slavery and misery. Judges chapter 10 verse 6 sets it up and says this. It says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It says again because this has happened several times. This is the eighth judge and each judge is a cycle. Okay, so again, for the eighth time, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Those were names of these false gods. The gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. So all these nations we showed you on the map. So, first of all, we get a great definition of sin here, don't we? Look at that. Look at that definition of sin. Doing what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. But think about it. I mean, after all God has done for them, He's brought them out of Egypt, you know, the Red Sea. He's brought them to the wilderness. He's brought them into this land. He's helped them get this land. So why why go into idolatry? Why, Why go into all this sin? Well, the answer, the root of sin is always idolatry. So the question is, why is idolatry so tempting? Well, here's the reason for them. These false gods of these other nations promised them things that they wanted. Right? They promised them things like material abundance, a fruitful land, um, sensual satisfaction, fertility, protection. These are things they wanted. Good things. 
Now, our idols don't have those same names. They're not called Baal and Ashtoreth and those things, but, but we serve them for the same reasons, don't we? We serve the gods of what? Success, comfort, security, pleasure, approval of certain people, because we think they will satisfy. They make promises to us, and we think they'll make good on it. But do they? Let's read on. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served Him, He became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. So what was the result? How did it work out for them? Did the idols provide the the satisfaction that they promised? No, of course not. They brought misery and slavery. Now, why do I say slavery? I say slavery because whatever you idolize has great power over your life. Right? Think about it. Whatever you idolize has a huge controlling influence over your life. It drives you... And controls you so that you do whatever you can to keep it pleased. To keep that thing. And you know that from experience, right? If it's success, you'll find yourself sacrificing very important things that you don't want to sacrifice in the name of that success. You'll find yourself sacrificing your relationships, your health, maybe your integrity to keep it pleased. To keep that success. Or how about if it's security? The security of a romantic relationship, maybe. You'll often sacrifice other friendships, your schoolwork, your sexual purity, to keep that idol. Or if it's approval, you'll sacrifice your time, maybe your honesty, your real identity, in order to get that approval and keep it. You see what I mean? It always enslaves you. It makes you something less than you really are, less than what God meant you to be. But, and it always ends in misery. Because the more you worship it, the less it seems to satisfy. It's the law of diminishing returns, in a sense. The more you serve it, the more empty you become. And you start to feel lost inside. You wonder who you are. And then, of course, if you ever lose that thing, well, you've lost the reason you're living. Right? If you lose that success, you lose that relationship, you lose that resume, that grade, that internship, whatever... Well, now you feel this incredible amount of despair and maybe depression because you've lost the thing that you were living for. Steve Jobs, uh, Apple's late co-founder and CEO, of course, he, incredible man, right, displayed this incredible drive and creativity. But like all of us, Jobs struggled with idolatry too. Surprisingly, though, his idol wasn't technology. You'd think it was, but from his biography, it seems like his idol was actually control. And specifically, it had to do with food. It's really interesting. Um, Steve Jobs was obsessed with food and the ways, and, and that obsession just dominated his life, basically, his relationships. As a teenager, he experimented with these different diets. One time he went for two weeks just eating apples. Um, you know, and, and so it would always be these raw foods. And something about just like only eating raw foods and having this control over his diet was exhilarating to him, he said. He just loved that sense of control. 
but like all idols, it worked at first. But the thing is with Steve Jobs is actually the idol, the biography goes on to say, ended up costing his life. Because in October 2003, he had a scan done. The scan turned up that he had this slow, progressing, kind of rare pancreatic cancer. The kind that if you just go into the doctor, you get a surgery quickly, it should have been fine. It should have been gone. But instead, uh, Jobs resisted that. He didn't want that surgery. His, His biographer says Jobs decided not to have the surgery to remove the tumor. It was the only accepted medical approach. He didn't want it, though. He really didn't want them to open up his body. Can you hear the control in that? So I tried to see, he said, I tried to see if a few other things would work. So specifically, he went into this strict vegan diet, large quantities of carrot juice, fruit juice, all these things. Well, anyway, for nine months, though, he did this. His friends, his family pleading with him, please get this surgery. He refused. It wasn't until July of the next year that he finally consented to have the surgery. But, and so when the doctors were in there doing the surgery, they realized it had spread. He would never not have cancer in his body again. It had spread too far. So eight years later, Steve Jobs died at age 56. And what few knew was that, you know, his body wasting away wasn't just a result of cancer. It was also a result of idolatry, this idol of control in his life. And ultimately, like every idol, Steve Jobs' idol failed him. Think about it for a second. How is your idol failing you? How is it really making you miserable? How is it controlling you? How is it driving your life toward a breakdown in some way or other? They always do. See, in order to get out of this spiritual insanity of idolatry, the first thing we have to realize is that our idolatry always makes us miserable, always makes us a slave. We have to see that in order to begin hating it, in order to want to turn away from it, in order to see the emptiness of its promises to turn away from it. That's the first thing we have to see. Okay? The second thing is this. We must realize the difference between false repentance and true repentance. The difference between false repentance and true repentance. What does that mean? Well, look at Judges chapter 10, 10 through 14. It says, Then the Israelites cried to the Lord, We've sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Malachites, and the Manites uh, oppressed you, And you cried to me for help. Did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods. So I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. What's going on here? I mean, they're praying, right? They're confessing their sin. Why is God not forgiving them? Why is God not saving them? Well, it seems like what's happening is... There's a, not a true repentance going on here, okay? It, it's, there's a false kind of repentance, maybe a shallow or a self-centered repentance, you might say. Okay? Look at their repentance for just a moment. Let's just think about it for a minute. We'll, we'll put it up on the screen. But what does false repentance look like? Well, according to this, false repentance, it acknowledges the sin and the idolatry, right? They did that. They said, God, we sinned. We serve these other gods. It wants out of the consequences, right? We all want out of the consequences. We all want that, right? Yes. That's natural. Everyone wants that. But thirdly, they're still serving their idols. 
They didn't actually put their idols away. And it seems like what they're doing is they're using God to get what they want. In other words, they're using God to get their idol. God, give us relief. In other words, give us our idol of comfort back so we can get comfortable again. But the next verses right after that show us a different kind of repentance. So after God says, no, I'm not going to rescue you, here's what what the Israelites say. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but rescue us, or please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. God could bear it no longer. So God responds differently here. He has, he has mercy. He, he doesn't want them to be in this misery anymore. Why? Because there's a different kind of repentance happening here. It's true repentance. It's what you might call God-centered repentance. Not self-centered, but God-centered repentance. So notice the difference. Look at what true repentance looks like. It looks the same at first, in a sense. They, it acknowledges the sin and the idolatry. right? It looks the same in the words, but the heart is totally different. It wants out of the consequences, yes, but it wants God's will more. Did you hear what they said? They said, uh, do with us whatever you think best. But, please, if you can, we'd like to get out of this consequence. Okay? But you hear their heart. They want God's will more than their will. Thirdly, it turns away from idols. In other words, true repentance realizes the emptiness of idols, realizes they're leading to misery and slavery, and turns away from them. And then lastly, they turn to God. It says that they turned to God and committed to serving Him only. In other words, they wanted God more than the stuff that idols were promising them. They wanted God. Paul shows this in in one verse in 2 Corinthians 7.10. shows this contrast. He says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Godly, God-centered sorrow and repentance. But worldly or self-centered sorrow brings death. It's not true repentance. So this is really, really important for us to get, okay? Really crucial. Because one kind of repentance honors God and is answered by God with forgiveness and salvation, right? But the other kind is not. The other kind does not honor God. God does not answer it with forgiveness and salvation. So that is huge. Like We have to understand what the difference is and think about that for our lives. So as you look at at this slide, as you look at the one that has both lists on it for a second, ask yourself. Uh Oh, that didn't turn out well. Well, you can see it, I guess. So that's false. That's true at the bottom. Sorry about that. It's supposed to be split. Um, But look at that for a second. Which one is more like the way you relate to God, would you say? False repentance? True repentance. Think about how sin and idolatry maybe is causing some misery in your life. Maybe some consequence are controlling in your life right now. And think about how you're responding. Maybe it's a relationship that you know isn't good for you, but you keep going back to it. Maybe you think more comfort and relaxation and fun, that's, that's what the key to life is, but it's not working out so well for you, chasing that all the time. Maybe... It's drugs, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's porn, I don't know. All these things caused by idolatry. Here's the question, are you more sorry for the misery and the consequences, the getting caught? Are you more sorry for how it dishonors God? 
What do you want more? Do you want the consequences and the misery to be taken away or God to be honored in your life? Do you really want God more or do you want the, that other thing more? See, because if we're just saying to God, God, I'll do anything for you, I'll follow you, as long as you give me that thing, well, see, what's our real God? It's that thing. It's not God. As Tim Keller says, you know, it's like we're trying to turn away from idolatry in an idolatrous way if we're doing that. And, and like, like Camp read earlier in the quote, God doesn't have to punish or judge us because of that, in a sense, because the judgment for idolatry is idolatry. Idolatry is so bad, so miserable in and of itself, just to give us that desire is misery. It's disaster. But what God wants us to see is the way out, right? The way out. He wants us to see that the way out of, of the insanity of idolatry is true repentance. So what God wants us, He doesn't just want us to confess and say, here's what I did, okay? He wants us to go further. He wants us to throw out the false gods in our life. He wants us to see how empty they are. He wants us to vow in our heart, God, I want to serve you alone. I don't want to serve them anymore. He wants us to go to God and recommit yourself to serving him only. He wants us to ask him and say, God, I need you to help me want you more than these idols. That's the start. God, would you help me want you more than these idols? That's the honest prayer that God honors. And when we do that, when we start praying to God like that and wanting him to get rid of our idols, we'll experience this forgiveness. More than that, we'll start experiencing freedom from our idols. All of a sudden, we'll have power to say no to the idols in our life. We'll have power to say to not be controlled anymore by those. What was the result? The Lord provided. He provided this deliverer, this judge named Jephthah. Here's what it says. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah and Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Arur. I'm not sure if that's right. Arur. Anyway. Um, to the vicinity of Meneth, as far as Abel Kiramim. There's a lot of big words in there. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. Okay, so God delivered them from their enemies through this judge named Jephthah. So here's what we've seen so far. So far we've seen if we want out of idolatry, we've got to see it causes slavery and misery, always. And we've got to see the difference that true repentance makes. Okay, here's the last thing. There's only one who can truly deliver. There's only one who can truly deliver. We've got to know that. Here's what I mean. Okay, the story of Judges, if you were to go and read the whole book, the story of Judges... It shows that cycle again and again that we talked about. So no earthly ruler, no judge can ever give them a lasting salvation, can ever give them a lasting rescue from their enemies. They always fall back into idolatry and into oppression. So what judges is showing again and again is the need for a true deliverer, one who has the power to save us for good. That's what we need. So here's, here's a few things about Jephthah, okay, that show us that a true deliverer is what we need. Let's look at Jephthah's life for a second. First of all, we see that Jephthah's deliverance, his deliverance was very short-lived, okay? Jephthah delivers them, but just 31 years later, we read this in Judges 13.1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. There you have it. They went right back, okay? 
his deliverance was very short-lived. What that tells us is that we need more than just a new leader or a superficial fix in our lives to get out of idolatry. We need a fundamental change in our heart. Because the problem is, the problem goes so deep, it's our very hearts. It's our very hearts that are sick with idolatry. And we can't get rid of that sickness on our own. We need a much greater and true deliverer. Not only is that his deliverance short-lived, his character is lacking. We're going to read about Jephthah for a second. He's an interesting character. Check, it, check this out. So here's the description of Jephthah. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Pretty interesting. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, wait a second, didn't you hate me? And drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us. Fight the Ammonites. And you will be the head over us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The the elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. They're swearing it, right? We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. So Jephthah is this mighty warrior, right? But we can quickly see that this is not the kind of person that you want as your leader. Because a judge was kind of like a, a, a king over an area at that time. This is not the kind of person you want as your leader. I mean, basically, Jephthah was kind of like this crime boss, you know, of this gang of scoundrels. You know, he's kind of like a pirate in his scallywag. He's got his little band of scoundrels. So when the people come to him, think about it. He's not concerned for them. He's concerned about, do I get to rule you or not? Am I going to be the leader? That's what he's concerned about. Is that the kind of guy you want leading your life, leading your country? And every judge is like that in the book of Judges. They all fall short. Their character is all lacking. Here's the point. What Israel needed was ultimately was not a judge, not a temporary leader, not a superficial fix. They needed a good and righteous leader. They needed someone who would care about them, someone who would rescue them. That's what they needed. But also, Jephthah's story, it's, it's strangely kind of predictive. Here's what I mean. It's interesting because in one sense, Jephthah is not like a deliverer you would want, right? His character is kind of totally the opposite in one sense. But in another sense, he's a type of the true deliverer. In other words, he's, he's kind of a foreshadowing of the true deliverer. In that, if you think about it, he's a very surprising choice for a leader. Right? He's, he's unlikely. Sure, he's a mighty warrior, but he's also an illegitimate child. He had one parent different than his siblings did. He was rejected by his half-brothers. He was an outcast. Yet God raises him up to be the deliverer. Does that sound like any other deliverers you know in the Bible? 
Interestingly enough, it's probably Jephthah's hard background and rejection and suffering that made him into that mighty warrior. It was his suffering that made him the deliverer. Sound like any other deliverers you know? Any other saviors in the Bible? Of course, Jephthah's story is meant to teach us that we need the one true deliverer. And of course, we're saying that Jephthah's story points towards Jesus as that one true deliverer. See, Jesus was not the, not the deliverer you would have expected. He wasn't the one you would have wanted. He was rejected. He was despised by his family. In many ways, he looked weak, and yet he was our true deliverer. Here's the last thing about Jephthah. Jephthah, this conversation he has is instructive to us. So when Jephthah has this, this conversation where he's double-checking with them back and forth, and he's saying, hey... I'm just making sure you're really going to, if I do this, you're really going to make me your leader, right? He's he's double-checking with them. So the interesting thing about that conversation is that conversation is strikingly parallel to the same, the conversation God had with them in chapter 10 when we were talking about repentance. Okay, it's very parallel. In a sense, both God and Jephthah are saying the same thing. What they're saying is, why are you coming to me now? After you hated me, you turned away from me, now you want me to rescue you? I'm only going to rescue you if you make me your leader. And that's the point. God is telling us here that if we want to be rescued from our idols, if we want out of the cycle, the final answer is that we must make God the leader of our life. More specifically, we have to accept God's appointed deliverer, Jesus, not only as our deliverer, but as our Lord as our authority. Sure, of course, we all want God to save us, right? We all want heaven. We all want forgiveness. That's easy. We all want rescue from our bad circumstances. But what the Bible is telling us here is that that's not the solution. You can get the rescue from your circumstances your whole life, and you'll miss it because idols will still control your life. You'll still go back to idolatry. Tim Keller says, I thought this quote was really good. He says, you cannot have Jesus' rescue without accepting his rule. You cannot have Jesus' rescue without accepting his rule. We must get rid of our other gods and make Jesus our leader. Make him the controlling influence of our lives. And here's the thing. Jesus is the only God that if you serve him, he won't lead you into slavery. He won't lead you into misery but into freedom. That's because, like all the other false gods, yeah, they led into misery. They led into slavery, but not Jesus. All the other judges, they were terrible leaders, not Jesus. See, Jesus is the only God who's perfectly good and who perfectly loves you. Jesus is the only one who can deliver you from your idolatrous heart. Here's the deal. If you follow Jesus, if you take all the other idols off the throne of your heart and put Jesus there. He'll give you freedom. Here's what it'll look like. It'll be partial in, in, in one way in this life, in this, in this sense, okay? He will, he will for sure set you free from the penalty of your idolatry. Jesus loves, when we come to him and tell him, this is my idolatry, I want to turn away from it, please help me turn away from it, he delights to forgive us. He delights to help us turn away from that idolatry. He, we get freedom from the penalty of that. Okay, But not only that, we get freedom from the power of that. 
When Jesus is the leader of our life, he gives us the power to say no to our idols. We don't have to give in to sin anymore. We don't have to give in to that controlling idol. He gives us freedom from that. But we know, right, as, even as Christians, we know that that pull of idolatry is still in this world. It's still in our hearts. It still affects us, right? And so ultimately we know that Jesus will give us freedom fully at his return from even the presence of idolatry. He'll get rid of all of it completely. Thankfully. So here's the question I want to leave you with tonight. Have you gone through that cycle of idolatry enough yet to see the misery of it? To want to hate your idols and turn away from them? Have you gone through that cycle enough to see that you need a true deliverer? Have you felt that misery enough to stop trying to run your own life? Is that working for you? I know it's not. It didn't work in my life. Summer before I was in high school, I remember very distinctly realizing this for the first time in my life, that I was calling myself a Christian, but I'd never, I'd never made Jesus the Lord of my life. That was a foreign concept to me until then. And I remember going out in the woods by myself, finding this big rock, sitting down and praying, just saying, God, whatever you want me to do, I'm willing to do it. I'd never had that heart before in my life, before that time. But I can honestly say I'm so thankful I did that. There's, I, I, regret, I have no regrets about that. Because Jesus has been such a faithful leader in my life. I'm so glad that I gave him control of my life. Have you done that? Have you come to the point where you've given him control of your life? Thrown away your other, your other gods? not I just urge you to do that Jesus invites you to do that or maybe are there certain areas of your life that you're keeping back from Jesus you're trying to run them yeah you're given you've given him a lot of areas of your life but you're still trying to run this area because you're afraid if you give him this area he's going to ruin it he's going to mess it up so you're trying to run it but you know it's not going well why not try letting him control it of course, for us as, as believers, this isn't just a one-time decision. Right? It's something we continually need to renew in our heart. Like we said, even as Christians, we tend to fall back into idolatry so easily. And so we need ongoing repentance. We need to continue removing the idols. Continue each day saying, Jesus, my life is yours. Jesus, my life is yours. Each day. So we're taking communion tonight because... Communion is an opportunity for us to turn from our idols and to turn to Jesus. It's an opportunity for us to keep on turning from idols and keep on turning to Jesus and resubmitting ourselves to Him. See, it, here's the thing. It, it's through feeding on Jesus, like we do in communion, that we're less hungry for our idols. It's in drinking deeply of Jesus and all His promises for us that we're less thirsty for their empty promises. It's in remembering his love and his faithfulness that we are protected from the temptations, the lies of our idols. So that's why we take communion tonight. Because it's here at communion we're reminded Jesus invites us to come to drop our idols that are killing us and come to him and find life. So we're going to celebrate communion
the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. Eat this. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Will you pray with me? Father, we want to want you more than our idols. We see the ways our idols have hurt our lives, hurt our relationships, driving us and controlling us, and yet they're so hard to give up. God, we want to want you more. And so, God, we we give up our idols to you. We ask you to be our Lord. We ask you to be that controlling influence in our lives. God, we want you. Oh, Lord, we repent. We turn to you, Lord, not because we want out of the consequences, but because we want your will for our lives more than our own. God, would you make that true in our hearts? Jesus, thank you that when we come to you, you receive us. When we come to you with a heart broken over our idolatry, you receive us. You cleanse us of our idols. God, you gladly take the king, kingship of our lives and rule and reign for goodness and beauty and truth in our lives. Lord Jesus, come and reign in our lives right now. Like usual, uh, when we start to sing in just a moment, you can just come forward whenever you're ready. Uh, We'll have two stations on the outside, two in the middle. Come whenever you're ready. You can just take a piece of bread, dip it in the wine that's in our hand, or there's grape juice on the tables on the outside. There's only wine on the inside. And you don't need to say anything. We'll say a word of blessing to you. So come. Come to Jesus. Jesus.